The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Are there some people here tonight that are new to meditation? Is this a first time for anyone? Huh, great. This is a first time for me, sitting in this seat, facing you, instead of being out there, facing here. So, um, uh, it's a little daunting. Um, When I uh, asked Gil about a topic for tonight, um, he suggested that often for the first time, that... uh, that some people give uh, what's called a way-seeking mind talk. Um, That's a Zen term, but it's basically about how I came to the practice. And um, so I thought about that a bit because I've told friends a little bit about coming to meditation. And and I realized that um, path really started much longer ago than I really realized. Um, and so I, um, I I gave it some thought. And, and I thought about the story um, that the Buddha uh, talks about the heavenly messengers. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that story. But that um, he saw sickness, old age, death, and uh, a peaceful monk. And the idea is that um, sickness, old age, and death are pretty much inescapable uh, in our lives. And um, often that's accompanied with suffering. And that the sight of the monk really represented the possibility of being at peace or at ease with these things that we face in our lives, the difficulties we face in our lives. and so I thought about that, and and I realized that I was pretty familiar with those, at least three of those messengers, pretty early on. Um, death came into my life uh, when I was about six years old, and um, a cousin of mine had died, and I actually went to his funeral, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body um, lying in a casket. And um, and I remember asking my dad, you know, what what's what's it like to be dead? <laughs> what is this? You know what? You know um, what happened? And um, one of his replies was that um, you know when you die you stop breathing. And at six years old, you know, I thought, hmm, what's that like? I tried holding my breath (laughs) and trying to see if I could hold my breath long enough to figure out what that might feel like. You know, I didn't accomplish very much because I'd give up holding my breath too soon. um, But it really um, was something that was foreign to me, you know, that I didn't know anything about, and it was was a mystery. Um, And old age was also present in my life when uh, I was young. My grandfather was already quite old. He was in his late 80s and 90s. Um, He died at the age of 95 when I was about seven, 
seven or eight years old. So um, I got to see old age up close too and got to see how he changed as he got older and how his writing got a little bit shakier and um, he did things a little bit slower. Um, And I also got to see sickness pretty close up. Um, My dad had uh, polio as a child and so um, it affected his his legs and his legs were visibly shrunken and, and wasted and he had to wear braces to be able to walk and use a cane. And uh, at night when he took the braces off, he had to rely on crutches to get around the house. So that was very, um, was very present for me. And, uh, and then um, I was trying to recall and I was asking my mom how old I was. But we were thinking probably six or seven years old, um, he was diagnosed with heart disease. And um, he was—he actually experienced episodes of angina. And uh, in those days, um, you know, the treatment was don't eat anything with salt, and here's some digitalis or nitroglycerin tablets, and that's it. You know, today we're so fortunate because we have things like bypasses, and um, uh, and so you know, when I think back. He probably would have been alive had we had that technology and that knowledge then. Um, but that was um, that was you know seeing seeing sickness and illness right right there in my life. Um, about a week before I turned eleven, um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard a lot of noise and commotion and it sounded like it was coming from my parents' room. So I got out of bed uh, to investigate and walked in to uh, have my mom scream at me to help her with um, my dad's oxygen tank and mask. And my brother was frantically attempting to do CPR on my dad. Um, and uh, ambulance came shortly. And I got whisked out of the room and they whisked him into the, to the ambulance and took him off to the hospital. And uh, my mom and brother jumped in the car and followed and they left me home with a neighbor. And uh, I recall sitting there on the kitchen floor with our family dog and I had a lot of questions and the questions were about sickness and death and dying and whether my dad was going to be all right or if he was going to die, and if he was going to die, what was that like? What was that like? And um, he didn't come home from the hospital. And uh, it was a huge blow to me because at that age, you know, we think think our parents are going to be around forever and they're going to be there for us. Um, And so here was a... Impermanence and unreliability right right in my face. Um, and uh, I also experienced a lot of angst and suffering at a young age. I remember quite clearly um, not being happy with my name. And I remember coming home from kindergarten one day and telling my dad, 
I don't want I don't want to use my name. And um, I was I was really bright, um, and so I got tested, and I was considered a gifted child. And so, uh, in the second grade, they they decided, oh, I should skip third grade, and they moved me to fourth grade of the next year instead of going into third. And that was my experience of um, loss because the friends that I grew up with were in the grade below me now and I was in this group of kids who were older than I was and I had to negotiate and make new friends Um, and uh, so that was something that uh, kind of continued in my life um, as I grew up Um, the neighborhood that I grew up in uh, was pretty racially diverse. Uh, we had very many different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and everyone seemed to get along pretty well. Um, but the city actually brought in kind of a low-income, low-rent housing um, just a few blocks from us. And we started to experience troubles. Um, I started to actually experience racial slurs in school that I had never experienced before. Um, And um, I woke uh, one night, and this was before my dad had had died, but I woke one one night smelling smoke and and heard some commotion and got out of bed. And my mom and brother were uh, at the front door with pots and pans of water throwing throwing water on the front door because it was on fire and uh, and our house had been firebombed. Um, another time uh, someone shot a hole in our dining room window and uh, thankfully in those days you know it was just a BB gun. You know nowadays we have to contend with much much more devastating kinds of weapons that people can get a hold of. Um, and over a series of, of weeks, um, we had other arson blazes on our block. And I remembered um, being sent one or two times to go to the corner. This was at the time when they would have the fire alarm box on the telephone pole and I had to go over there and break the glass. And, um, and so with all of that unrest, um, my parents feared for my safety as I started to go to junior high school. And so they transferred me to another school. And again, I experienced loss of all the friends that I knew because now I was going somewhere further away from home and further away from the neighborhood of kids that I knew. Um, One morning, uh, it was sometime after my dad died, um, I was home alone and happened to be a school holiday and my mom actually was at work and my siblings had gone to a trip to the Bay Area and they were due home any minute. Um, but I heard some noise in, in the bedroom, in my parents' bedroom. And I got up and went to investigate. I was reading a book in the living room. And um, a man had 
forced the window open and he was halfway through the window coming into the bedroom. And thankfully he was just as surprised as I was and he bolted out the window. Um, But subsequently we had, um, my brother and I uh, came home from school one day and came home to find our house in disarray and someone had broken in and strewn our belongings around through the house and you know things were taken and it was um it was a really devastating feel of you know kind of like your place of safety which was home had been violated and it felt like there was no place that you could be safe because you'd come home and somebody had been in your house already so um, my mom felt compelled that she needed to sell our house and move to another neighborhood that might be safer for us to grow up in. So I got to, yet again, make new friends and lose um, old friends. Um, so, it was, so it was very difficult. And, um, and also because I had skipped that grade and I was considered smart, Um, You know, in America, we have this kind of like negative assessment of people who are smart. And so it was much harder to form friendships. You know, most of the kids were like, oh, you're smart. (laughs) I don't want to be your friend. You're kind of odd. So there was this kind of sense of isolation, this feeling of not belonging or or kind of being uh, excluded. so as I got into my early teens, um, I came across and started reading books by Alan Watts and books on Taoism, and they resonated with me a little bit. You know, there was that little bit of feeling, wow, this feels comfortable, this feels good. It kind of gave a little sense of, of the meaning of, of life to me, or at least that there was another way um, it was like I was trying to find a way out of the suffering that I was experiencing in, in my life. The, um, you know, sometimes there were, I would feel really miserable, and even though I was doing well in school, succeeding in school, um, it, it was like it wasn't enough. There was something missing. Um, and so, when I look back on all of that, I think about all of those times. There were just so many lessons about impermanence and unreliability um, and suffering and that unsatisfactoriness of of life that that the Buddha called dukkha. And um, so it was really surprising to me to notice that it was there really early. Um, So I got... You know, I, I went on to college and I graduated and got a job, got married, you know, kind of all the typical things that we do. Um, but I found that work was very stressful for me and my blood pressure went up and I had to go on medication for it. Um, and um, my husband's dad uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer and he could no longer work. And my husband at the time was working on his master's degree, so he dropped his master's program to go home and help the business and his dad had a owned a little mom and pop grocery store um, 
And so um, after his dad passed away, the, the two of us really thought about our lives. And we go, gosh, I don't know if this rat race is worth it. I don't know if this striving to do, you know, to, to be successful in this career and successful in, you know, having high-paying jobs, et cetera, et cetera, was, um, was it. And uh, here we had both fathers who, who died before they reached an age of retirement who couldn't make it to that time when we, what we usually consider the easy life, you know. And, um, and so we, we um, decided that we wanted to give that lifestyle up. And uh, so we gave up our jobs in the Bay Area. We were living in the Bay Area at that time. We sold our house and we bought a half acre uh, of land in the middle of pine and oak and dogwood and cedar trees at about 4,000 foot elevation in the Sierra foothills. Um, we managed to find a way to make it work. My husband got employment locally and I was able to manage to do some telecommuting at a time when that was pretty rare and pretty new. Um, And uh, this is just a little sidebar, but during that time I gained weight and I needed to lose some weight, so I signed us up for step aerobics (laughs) <laughs> which my husband did not know that I was going to do. And because um, he said, I'll support you in anything you do to lose weight. And then when I said, well, I signed you up for this class, he was like, I was thinking more on the lines of diet. Um, but um, I lost weight from the aerobics and I eventually became an aerobics instructor. And then I got involved in line dancing and started to teach that, and that got us involved in um, dancing. So for those of you who know about me a little bit, I also dance. And the reason I'm here tonight, able to be here tonight, is my husband and I are um, attending a dance convention over in Burlingame for the weekend. So um, I'm happy to be here, but I also am going to be happy to be dancing later tonight. (laughs) Um, so anyway I'm going to fast forward to about the middle of 2001 Um, I was really interested and intrigued about starting to do some yoga but I kind of wanted some support and so I wanted my husband to do some yoga and he was kind of like oh I don't know know." his idea was um, seeing the program Lilius uh, Lilius and you or something and she was just so agile that you know he was like I can't do any of that that's not me and so it, it just happened so that PBS had a special on this teacher by the name of Baron Baptiste and he did this yoga boot camp and the great thing about the show was he had people of all sh- shapes and sizes and ages and flexibility. And so when we watched this program, they had, you know, this one guy who was this big, overweight guy who could not even touch his toes. And when my husband saw that, he goes, 
Well, I can do that. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, great. And so I, you know, said, okay, I'm buying tapes. We're going to get started. And um, so we got started in a yoga program. And, um, and I started to realize that there was more to yoga than just the postures, you know, more than just doing the physical part of it and um, started reading some books that talked about the spiritual aspect of cultivating the the spiritual side of your life. And so um, my interest at that point started to get me to start reading books about mindfulness and Buddhist practice. I bought some CDs by um, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg on Insight Meditation. And... um, you know, there were no local teachers where I lived in the Sierra foothills. It's kind of sparse in the way of meditation instruction. So I would try to to listen to these CDs and practice. And I would go for like two or three days and then, you know, I'd, oh, I can't do this. Or I'd go for maybe a week and, and then I couldn't do it. Um, but the turning point for me was I came across a book and it was called Yogi Bear. B-A-R-E. And it was a book that consisted of these little short vignettes and interviews with the various popular yoga teachers at that time. And they happened to have an article on this other teacher, and his name was Brian Kest. And he taught yoga. He still teaches yoga in Santa Monica. And he described how he had gone to India to kind of validate his practice and also learn from the from the masters there. And when he'd done that, he goes, he thought, I've done everything, you know, I've experienced everything, I've done everything. And some of his friends said, no, 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 you haven't done everything yet. You need to do this retreat while you're here. And so he didn't know what he was getting into, but he went on this retreat. And he then described how it was the most difficult thing he'd ever done in his life. But it was also the most fulfilling and the most meaningful thing he had ever done in his life. And, um, and when he came back to his um, yoga class in Santa Monica, he changed the structure so that it was Donna-based. And he knew that it was a huge risk for him renting this space in Santa Monica, to say, oh, I'm going to trust that people will donate enough for me to pay the rent. Um, but he was successful at it. And he still teaches there now. And I think most of the donations he gets, he donates to some local charities. And um, maybe about four years back, maybe five years back, I had the opportunity to meet him and he was up in the Bay Area doing a workshop. And I couldn't do the whole weekend, but I made one class. And I got the opportunity to meet him. And I told him I wanted to express gratitude to him that he didn't know me, but I had read this book. And it had inspired me to start this meditation practice. And it was such gratitude for his inspiration. And he was just really touched, and it was great. Um, 
And he teaches yoga now so that he not only just emphasizes doing posture, but he really emphasizes being mindful. It's that mindfulness in, in what you're doing. So, um, anyway, I was really interested then about really trying to see if I could get a meditation practice going. And I thought, well, the best way would be to go on a retreat. Because I didn't know any better. (laughs) And there were no teachers available. So, because of the fact that my husband and I were dancing and coming to the Bay Area often, it turned out that we had an acquaintance in dancing that turned out was a volunteer at Spirit Rock. And so I started asking him questions about the retreats there and the teachers there. What should I do? Um, but in the back of my head, I keep, kept thinking about the retreat that Brian Kest had done. And he had done a Goenka retreat. And I tried to do a little... Um, research on that and I couldn't find a whole lot but a few people said oh you know that's really hard that's really hard and um, but I you know I was challenged by that uh, and I was intrigued and so I said I'm going to do this and um, so anyway this friend of mine that did the volunteering uh, one day he he asked me he goes well do you have a regular sitting practice here you are thinking about doing a retreat do you have a regular sitting practice And I said, well, no. And I started to make an excuse about not having time. And then it dawned on me, I mean, mid-sentence, I realized I had made time in my life to do yoga every day because I thought it was important. And then I realized I didn't have an excuse to say I didn't have time for meditation. And so the next day, I started my meditation practice. And um, that was back in January 2003. And I started out doing like five or ten minutes. And I would incrementally inch it up. Um, And the Goenka retreat that I signed up for um, was going to be at the end of April. So I had like three and a half months to kind of get some idea what meditation was all about and to kind of get geared up for it. So the same friend also had some wise advice and he goes, well, you're going to be sitting on this cushion for a long time. And he says, it might be wise to get your body in shape. And so he suggested that I just practice sitting on the cushion, not necessarily meditating, but practice sitting on the cushion for a long time, like hours during the day. So I was able to get my husband to build me a little platform (laughs) that fit in front of my computer so I could put my meditation cushion on it and still work on the computer. And so by the time I got to the retreat, I was sitting on this cushion for about eight hours a day, even though it wasn't meditation. My body kind of got used to that. So thankfully I had a little less discomfort at least physically. Um, So, you know, I'd never been away from home for 10 days without 
being able to call or talk to my husband. And that was daunting. Um, the first afternoon of the retreat, the Goenka retreat, um, you know, when you signed in, they asked you to hand over your car keys and your wallet and your cell phone. And I was like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe I didn't do enough research on this place. <laughs> and and after the, the evening meal, they gave an orientation and they said, yeah, you know, you're going to be here for 10 days and we want you to commit to staying here for that time. So if you don't think you can do the 10 days, we want you to leave now. Now was even worse. It was like, oh my God, <laughs> what have I got myself into? And I thought, uh-oh, maybe this is a cult. <laughs> and um, so it was a real challenge um, doing that first retreat. That took a lot of courage and determination and a lot of just coming back. Um, I remember uh, one day looking at my watch and realizing I had six more hours of meditation that day. And I thought, I can't do it. My brain's going to (laughs) explode. And yet, I made it to the next sitting and the next one. And I just kept coming back. Um, And I found out just how much suffering we create in our own minds. That it's it's all what we experience in our minds. Um, I recall the first day that we did something called a determination sit. And that was that as soon as you sat on your cushion and the meditation session started, you were not to move to change your posture or adjust your feet or your hands for the entire hour. And it was interesting because before that time, um, I would sit through an hour sitting and not move. And the first sitting of the day was a two-hour sitting, but it was kind of very relaxed in the sense that they allowed you to get up and go to the bathroom or stretch or whatever during those two hours. But, you know, I found myself able to sit maybe an hour and a half in that period. But that day that they said, you are not to move, that sitting was the most unbearable sitting because all of a sudden my foot fell asleep. I started feeling aches and pains. And then I started thinking, well, if I don't move my foot for the entire hour and it doesn't get any blood, am I going to have a damaged foot? And I just suffered. I suffered tremendously. And um, when that bell rang, I was so relieved. (laughs) And I walked out the door and I just, you know, went maybe... 50 feet, and then all of a sudden I just, I almost burst out laughing because I realized that I had done that to myself. That I had allowed my my mind to create this thing that was like, this is impossible, and yet I had done it before. And there's so many times in our lives that we do that. We create a barrier or we resist something Or because there's a limitation, all of a sudden it becomes a difficulty. Um, And at that retreat, 
um, I was visited with that last messenger. And I wasn't a monk, but um, I kind of would describe this person. Um, it, it was a girl, and I and I saw her as a radiant being. And um, she was a yogi at the retreat, and, and she was probably only in her late teens, but she was there. And when I would see her walking, um, she always just seemed to be at ease. It was just amazing, you know. And she would, she didn't wear a lot of clothing, and it was cold, and it was sometimes it was rainy. And she never seemed affected by the weather or what was going on. She just always seemed at peace. And I was just really moved by seeing her and thinking there's a possibility of having peace and having ease. Um, And, you know, when I think about it, I see people like that now at retreats. and, you know, usually they're the people that have a really deep practice. But you can see that, that sense of peace in them. And, um, but that was my first experience of that. Um, when I came home from that first retreat, I, I didn't realize the depth of the changes that had happened during that period of time. Um, but I remember coming home and the normal everyday things that my husband would do that would normally annoy and irritate me did not even touch me. It was like, there was just so much equanimity and ease and spaciousness that I never knew could exist. So here was direct experience showing me that there was indeed a path of practice that could lead to an end to suffering. Of course, you know, everything's impermanent. So that went away after about a week. But it was a glimpse. It was a glimpse of what's possible. And, um, and I also came away with the knowledge or the knowing that we actually have the responsibility for how we experience our life and how we hold what comes into it. Um, so I also realized that I needed a teacher now. <laughs> and it, the tapes and CDs were okay, but it just wasn't quite enough. So I started going to day-longs at Spirit Rock and elsewhere. And in the fall, I decided to do a short Spirit Rock retreat because I wasn't sure I was up for the 10 days. The 10 days was really daunting. And... So I signed up for a retreat at Spirit Rock, and it turned out that the two teachers for that retreat were Philip Moffat and Gil Fronstahl. And that was my first contact with Gil. And when I heard him teaching, I knew he's the teacher for me. He was just very direct and and just um, very practical. Um, And from my experience with dancing and dance teachers, I knew that great teachers are hard to find, rare and hard to find. So I thought, I've got to find out where Gil teaches and see if I can come and, uh, and attend. So I found out about IMC and 
decided to come out for a day long. At that time when we lived in the foothills, the drive was two hours and 45 minutes one way. But I said, it's worth it. So I came out for a day long and um, everyone was just welcoming and friendly. And I knew that I'd be back. So I kind of made a commitment and I said, I'm going to come at least once a month. And and then Gil offered his Dharma practice days and he did the ten paramis. So I added that to my commitment and just said, hey, I'm going to make the time. Just like I made the time for yoga and for a daily meditation practice, this is important. Um, Since then, I've been on several retreats. The longest one was a month long at Spirit Rock um, two years ago. And uh, I continue to work this practice both on and off the cushion. And uh, I consider IMC my home away from home. Um, So, I'm going to summarize because I'm running out of time, but um, I retired um, early from my job two years ago because I decided that I wanted to spend more time devoted to practice. Um, and that was a big decision because we weren't necessarily financially secure. Of course, I don't know. We can't say that now, today, <laughs> with the financial markets. But um, but it was a choice to let go into the practice and to, um, to really um, um, kind of acknowledge that the time that we have to practice is very precious. And we don't really know if we'll always be able to do the practice. So the time that we can is really important to do it. Um, A lot of healing in my life has happened through practice. Um, There was a time when I used to feel like there was a piece of my heart that was missing. And I was always looking, looking for something. And I've now found a wholeness to that. And I know that it's not looking externally, but it's looking within that brings us that wholeness. Um, And I also found that um, I didn't think that I could ever leave the silence and solitude of the forest. Um, But I now found that we each carry silence and solitude and peace within. So when we moved from the foothills to the Central Valley, um, it didn't feel like a loss. Um, What was the gain was, we're now an hour closer drive to IMC, and I'm able to participate more often here um, and do more things uh, for IMC. So I wanted to just leave you with one reflection. I just sat the two-week retreat with Gil at Hidden Villa in September. And when I returned, um, I had an email waiting for me from a friend 
who's passing on, you know, you get these emails where people share these pictures. Um, and there were these just beautiful collection of pastoral and peaceful pictures from around the world. And the subject line was, if this is earth, what's heaven like? And I shared it with a friend of mine and his remark in response to that was, heaven will be better. It will have people in beautiful places without the greed, jealousy, and hate. And I thought about that and I thought about the retreat I'd just come from where I was among 25 other yogis and we were all working ardently to be free of greed, jealousy, hate. And I replied to him saying that we don't have to wait for heaven to find a world free from that. That not only is it possible to find that in a retreat surrounded by all these wonderful yogis working together, but we can each be free from these hindrances and that this is the path that we walk each moment in our practice. Each moment of mindfulness when we're really truly present is a moment of freedom. So, um, I offer these thoughts and reflections for your consideration and I'm happy to answer any questions or hear your thoughts. Um, Thank you for sharing your story. And this isn't really a meditation question, but you mentioned um, both dance and yoga, but I'm actually very curious what kind of dance you do and how because I've been doing yoga is actually what brought me to meditation also uh-huh. so if you would kind of reflect on how that happened for you as well and how the dance yoga connection is uh-huh. okay Please. thanks I think for me the connection from yoga into meditation was really natural because there's that element of being aware of your breath as you're doing the poses and and some of the poses if you um, hold them for a period of time there's a difficulty that arises and that difficulty if you're really paying attention to your breath and working with the breath allows you to stay with it even when it's difficult Um, and so I think there's that natural transition to starting to realize that there can be some ease in in doing difficult poses or things that you think are very difficult. And when you can place the attention on the breath or pay, place your attention on just being aware of the pose that you're doing, that everything else goes away. It's just you and and that moment. And um, and there can be ease there. Um, as for dancing, um, I've always liked movement. And so for me, that was kind of natural. Actually, it was much less natural for my husband. So when I grew up, I actually um, would attend these. Uh, there would be church dances and... Uh, and I would attend those. And so 
dance was kind of woven into my life pretty early. But my husband had never danced before, and his idea was you went to a wedding and you had a couple of drinks and you get out on the floor <laughs> and you move a little. And I'd go, this isn't dancing. And he goes, yeah, we're moving and we're on the dance floor. And when we actually started to learn dancing, he got really sober (laughs) because he had to remember everything. And so he typically didn't drink and dance at the same time. Um, But we do um, something called West Coast Swing and uh, Hustle and Cha Cha and Nightclub Two Step and various other dances. And uh, someday, if I come back to do another talk, maybe I'll do a talk about um, the Dharma and dancing, because there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff in dance. It's it's a very seductive thing. And um, when I was on retreat on the Goenka retreat, there was a lot of emphasis about letting go of things, and and Goenka is very s- strong about. You know, no dancing, no entertainment. And um, and I got really scared because I was like, dance was like everything to me. You know, it was like an addiction. And, it, you know, I would look forward to, to it. And if I missed it, it was like, oh, gosh, you know, this is terrible. Um, and I was really afraid, am I going to lose dancing if I do this practice? And um, it was something that I just kind of, I think I even brought it up as a question to the teacher at the time. And and they just said, oh, don't worry about it. So I kind of let it go. And what was interesting was in my practice, eventually what happened was the compulsion, that feeling that I had to dissolve. And I still enjoy dancing as much as I used to. But there's not that element, that compulsive element to it. And um, I find it really freeing. Instead of being kind of like driven by dancing, I can actually choose. You're welcome. Thank you. Have you been able to persuade your spouse to meditate ah. because uh, you you seem to share so many of those things that are almost that are that are meditation in other ways yeah um, he doesn't have a sitting practice but we do share and um, because we live a little distance away from Beria when we travel together um, you know audio Dharma is my saving grace here um, I will take talks off of Audio Dharma and put them on a CD and we'll listen to it in the car. And, and we do discuss and talk about the different topics. And, um, and so there's a little bit of percolation of the Dharma into his life. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I started a practice of, of you know, catch and release of bugs in our house. And um, at first, he did it because he was like, oh, you know, she's going to get upset if, if I s- smash these bugs. Right? 
And then it was interesting because one of the times that I was away on retreat, he was like, oh good, she's gone. I can just squish this bug. And he went to do it. And then he goes, I couldn't do it. Because he started thinking about, this bug has a life. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that, you know, this bug has every right to be happy and live a happy life. And even though he thought, oh, I can, you know, I'm free, she's not home, I can just squish this bug, he realized he couldn't do it. So I think sometimes it's just a little bit of modeling and mirroring, but I think a lot of it is just the communication and talking. And so even though he doesn't have a sitting practice, a lot of it kind of... Um, gets in there and sometimes he reminds me on times when I'm stuck and he'll go well aren't you supposed to do this (laughs) or or he'll actually go well you know I do this or I learn this from you and it's just wonderful it's just it's great and um, I learned fairly early on that I couldn't really push him about it that that was kind of causing him to, you know, want to not do it. So I just, you know, we kind of had an understanding that I could listen to audio dharma in the car, and he would he would listen. And um, and now a lot of times, uh, you know, we'll listen to a dharma talk, and he might say, "Okay, stop, stop," and then we'll talk about whatever it was that caught his attention, or he'll say, "What did Gil say?" or "What was what was that?" And we'll have a little conversation about it. So it's just really nice. Thank you. We have a few minutes. So if no one has any questions, we could end with a short sitting. Thank you.